Welcome to Insights, practical startup advice from founders, leaders, and VCs in an easy-to-consume format. This podcast is created by Angular Ventures, a full-stack pre-A VC firm that backs early-stage enterprise and deep tech companies from Europe or Israel that are targeting global category leadership and emphasis on the U.S. market from day one. These podcasts are taped virtually with a live audience. To join an upcoming session or learn more about the firm and how we operate, find us at angularventures.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Angular Insights. I say this a lot, but today we have a very special session. We have Annette Gez and Neta Medav, the CEO of Papaya Global and Vault Platform. We're going to be talking about compliance tech, building painkillers, being a female founder, and much, much more. So Gil, Neta, Enat, thank you all so much for joining us. Let me join Anne in thanking Enat and Neta for agreeing to do this. I know there's a lot of coordination. It was hard to get it done, but we really appreciate it. I think it's a really interesting conversation on a bunch of different levels. Let me start by introducing the two of you. So I'll do the formal intros first. So Enat Gez, um, an entrepreneur with 20 years of experience, is a leading expert in global payroll and global workforce management. Papaya Global has raised over $440 million from investors, including Bessemer, Insight, and Scale, and is now valued at over $3.5 billion. She co-founded the company in 2016 after seeing the technology gap in global payroll. The company combines her twin passions, technology and global HR, to start a revolution in global payroll management. The company's software provides a total workforce package, allowing companies to manage all of their global people, payroll, and payments operations through a single dashboard, again, on a global basis. Neta Medav is the co-founder and CEO of Vault Platform which is a venture-backed startup with a mission to help companies worldwide become the best and most ethical versions of themselves. The company's post-Series A, the most recent round, uh, was led by Gradient Ventures, which is Google's AI-focused fund. It is also a proud Angular Ventures portfolio company. We're delighted to have been the very first investor to understand what Neta was talking about. Maybe she'll have a chance to talk about that a bit. Vault is transforming the way companies detect and manage internal risk, improve company culture, and drive efficiencies through ethical operations. The platform empowers employees to have their voices heard and surface any ethical breaches while providing employers with pioneering risk detection capabilities and the ability to see repeated patterns. Prior to Vault, Neta worked for more than a decade in the UK government as a climate change negotiator and participated in the Paris Climate Agreement. Alongside growing Vault, that is on a mission to promote female founders in tech and spends time coaching and helping her fellow female founders who are earlier on their journey. And we'll talk a little bit about female founder dynamics. And, and I have some questions that you guys have graciously allowed me to ask from a male perspective. So I'm looking forward to that. On a personal note, I've known Netta since the first pitch meeting when she said, we're going to use blockchain to solve sexual harassment. And I was like, what? None of that makes any sense whatsoever. But it was intriguing enough to lead to more and more meetings. And then it took us a while to get to our own conviction to bring other investors around the table, but we're really excited to, to have backed uh, Vault from the very beginning. A knot uh, is for me a more of a painful story because I ran into a knot at a conference in Lisbon, and I think she tried to pitch me or explain what papaya was, and it was like at the seed stage or very early, and I didn't get it. And in my defense, I'll say I didn't really even understand it was a pitch. And in my defense, I'll also say I wasn't really at a fund that was allowed to invest in Israel at the time. But it was very tragic for me because it's one of my many anti-portfolio companies, yet another amazing unicorn company that was right there. And I totally didn't get it. But sorry, <laughs> sorry to my LPs. But um, before we get into the meat of the conversation, which we're going to be talking about compliance tech, the, the bulk of the conversation is going to be what is compliance tech and also some sort of topics around being a female founder. I know you guys have an announcement you want to make. So let me turn the floor over to you guys and tell us what it is. We're announcing Papaya Global and Vault Platform's partnership today between our 
two products and two companies, and that's super exciting. We'll be offering bulk platform to all of Papaya's customers with reduced price, and that would enable even further compliance, specifically with the upcoming e-whistleblower directive, which our platform enables compliance with. It's great to be able to partner in this way, and hopefully in the future, we'll see product integrations as well on top of this joint go-to-market motion. Congratulations. Cool. So let me start by asking you guys, maybe I'll start with a nod. Oh, what is compliance tech and how do you define that? It's the biggest paradox, isn't it? Compliance and tech. So not, normally you, you'd say that those things don't meet because they are so different. But I think that eventually as companies are growing up and, and growing very quickly, they understand that compliance is very important. Key factors that can impact their growth, can impact future investment, can impact their ability to go public easily or so on. When we started, one of the angel investors that did not invest and told me, you know, your deck is so boring. I'm just going to skip reading it because the topic is so boring to me. But I think this is the charm about compliance tech. This is really the boring stuff, but this is the fundamentals that you really need to have in your own company, in every company. As much as you make it smooth, seamless, easy to manage, it's not the glamorous thing. Nobody goes around in the corridors and say, hey, we, are, we have a compliance tech in the organization. But on the other hand, the organization can act better, much quicker, without having any disruption. Let me ask you, Netta, an, an, a version of that same question. When I met Vault, I, I, I would never have described Vault as a compliance tech company. I would say, oh, it's HR tech. You know, they're probably going to sell the VP of HR. Maybe it's legal tech. Why do you use the compliance tech term? Why are those other terms, maybe for Vault specifically, like why are those other terms not applicable? And how did you realize you were a compliance tech company? Because I don't think you were using that language when we first talked about Vault. No, we had no idea. That's where we sit and that's who we are. And it was very much part of our maturing and our growing up as a company to realize where exactly we sit and what market do we serve and what buyer do we serve best in this multi-stakeholder environment that that we're in. Yes, we very much started as an HR tech company. We saw and still see to this very day, the value add of our product is a cultural value add. It's to protect companies by protecting their people. And that still stands at the heart of everything we do and our mission and our impact in the world. But soon enough, or perhaps not as soon as I wanted to, but at some point in our journey, we realized that we're actually solving an immediate pain, which is a regulatory pain which is why we sit with compliance because we are enabling an existing compliance need that companies have. And that need is being fed by regulations, changing regulations and requirements that they're facing. I not mention companies going public. That is certainly very much feeds in into the regulations that we're talking about, the SOPS requirements, which require every company that is public to have a mechanism such as Vault in place. And the same applies to Europe. And so these regulations mean that compliance officers are required and there is already kind of a budget line for a product such as ours. And now for us, part of the story was to understand this is the immediate pain we're solving. It's a must-have pain because everyone needs to have a solution in place. And now let's look at this backwards analog legacy service and transform it and disrupt it with a digital platform, which brings in innovation into the heart of what this company does. And I think it's a very similar story for Papaya and how they approach payroll and hiring globally and why we then realized actually 
this is our buyer, the rest are just stakeholders and the value add will interest the stakeholders, but this is how we zero in into our buyer. Was it the same for you, Not Would you have said on day one that you're a compliance tech company? No, never. I'm not using this term <laughs> currently as well. I think that eventually this should be, for me, the goal without saying. So payroll is, is always a tricky thing because where does it stand? It's not HR, it's not finance, right? It's just in the middle. It's the liability of the organization to pay their employees correctly and on time. If any company won't pay her, their employees, eventually the branding doesn't matter, promises, benefits, it, it, nothing matters. People want to uh, work there and this is their biggest liability. So I think that we want companies to understand how important it is without us naming it a compliance because I think that eventually payroll is the heart of the organization. Employees is the heart of the organization. Everything that is around them, those are the tools that you need to create uh, in order to make their experience with the company better. And when you're dealing it out with these kind of compliancy or legal requirements as part of your software package, does your company take on any risk? If you get something wrong, are you liable? Like, How does that, it seems like a kind of a dangerous place to play. It's a lot more dangerous than like a dev tool or something where you can always blame your user if something goes seriously wrong. Here, the user would blame you if something went wrong. First, I think this is part of that, handing over the liability to you. This is a serious part of our business and we are proud to take it because this is what we bring to the table. We are taking full liability. Uh, I think that in every business, you have a risk, right? If you are providing uh, the infrastructure and you, you are suddenly, you, you don't perform, everything is down, you do have the liability as well. It's no different than this. We are having the liability. We are always very proud of being the ones stepping in and uh, eventually taking responsibility if things did not go correctly and it can happen. But I think this is part of also of our offering and our uh, kind of building the product, assuring that we build the product solid enough that the things that can go wrong are very minor inter internally uh, and within the cycle. Uh, so you can have a full confidence that you can take this liability. Can you talk a little bit more about how you actually implement that liability that you're taking? Like, what does that mean for your product organization? For your own lawyers, do you have to take out insurance? Are your contracts with your customers different because you're taking on some liability? Obviously, the first and foremost liability that we have is eventually to pay salaries on time and correctly. Okay, so those are two different things. Those are two different liabilities. Correctly means that we need to build the engine on everything that we are doing on the payroll side and understand that I can process the data correctly. I can understand that the your payslip really represents your salary, everything that needs to be processed according to the company policies and country regulation and so on. And aside this, I know that eventually everything has been verified. So when we started, we spent almost two years building what we call the countrypedia and the country guidelines, the compliance engine that we can eventually vet and assure that everything is being correct because payslip errors occurs all of the time. In reality, to be completely honest, the majority of us, we just don't go over our payslip or we just don't understand errors. So we don't really raise them. But payslip errors are there. This is a very manual industry still. And this is where we are coming and we can raise or we can point out errors quite rapidly. This is why when we are taking over a new client, we are always checking the previous data because we need to ensure that we align on the data. And we always raise total mistakes that are coming from the past to the client. And obviously, at this point of time, maybe there is not much to do, but it just shows you that eventually it's there. 
So this is the first liability that we had to take, being very correct on the data on how do you process the payroll. The second thing is paying on time. Here, it's more tricky because let's take today, for example, some of the banks in the Russia and Ukraine are non-active. I mean, sending funds to the country is a challenge. A challenge that we can solve today specifically, I don't know. We are just investigating it these days and checking our options. Are we committed to assure that we have a solution? Yeah, we'll find a solution this way or other. But this is really where we are stepping in on normal business days. This will be assuring that every one of the employees that we are managing is being paid correctly. There are no stops or some uh, complex uh, events that happen along the way. It can happen. It happens for us every single month. Compliance can raise uh, flags and stop transactions because your name or a very similar name to yours is being currently flagged as a name that uh, is not allowed to receive funds and we need to do clarification. Um, banks have their own thing. But this is where we take the full ability to solve this. Uh, and if we are, if, if we can point out and understand who messed up along the way, uh, we will also assure or we'll take the full ability to compensate the employee about the fact. But we stand on their side. So we will always represent their interests. We will always fight for their uh, interests and so on. And we'll assure to represent them the best. The thing to perhaps add about compliance products is that they can't really just cover 90% of compliance needs, right? So the implications for startups in the space is that they need to be mature and not play the MVP game. Their whole product thinking is very different because of this, right? The expectations that clients have on us, and again, Vault is, a, is an earlier, earlier stage startup than Papaya. Already, our clients expect certain standards of security. They expect we're undergoing our SOC 2 audit these days, right? And that's pretty early for a company at our stage. The expectations are just really high. And from a product perspective, when we tell them we enable their compliance, we need to enable 100% of the compliance requirements within the remit of our product. And that puts certain pressures on us, but also gives us an amazing opportunity to really lock in the need. Forces you to grow up fast. And it, I guess it also forces you to spend more on engineering earlier before, like there's no MVP, there's just Pete, right? There's no, okay. Another risk that I'd love to get your take on, maybe starting with Netta, is I would think that for a founder setting out to solve regulation-related problem, right? I would imagine you have two big problems. Tell me if these are real or not, but I would imagine that one, one problem is that regulations are, they change all the time, you're subject to risk, and they're different in different jurisdictions, right? There's 40-something companies in Europe. There's 50 states in the U.S. There's, and that's just two continents, right? There's a lot more. And then everything is international. I remember, Netta, you had an early customer that had employees in China and you had issues there. So you've got that changing regulations and complex regulations, and that adds risk to you. And the other thing is the sort of commoditization, right? Because if, as you pointed out earlier, if everyone needs to comply with something, you don't have this phenomenon of early adopter customers on some level. Everyone's got to find a solution to these. Right? They're legally required to buy a version of your product. So what does it mean to be an early adopter in a market where everyone's legally required to have a solution? Great questions. It's definitely a challenge, but I think also an opportunity when regulation is ever-changing and your product, again, enables that compliance, you constantly have the opportunity to release new products within your suite you constantly have the opportunity to upsell customers as well. 
and you have the opportunity to hold the know-how. These days, Vault is partnering with leading law firms around the world to create a knowledge center that puts us in a position where we know the changes that are coming before the industry even knows them. And we have the opportunity to educate. And through education, we have the opportunity to sell and to innovate with the industry. So I think it's definitely a challenge and a risk, but at the same time, it's also a great opportunity for our business growth. That's a strategy, essentially. So yeah, that's a very, that, that is something that is very present for us. I'm sure for Nat as well, from a payroll perspective and from compliance perspective with all the different jurisdictions. But it, like, it, it, explain to me how it works. Like, how do you penetrate a customer who's legally required to buy a solution? Right. In other words, you never show up at a customer and the customer, oh, what a good idea. I hadn't thought of that. Like yeah. they're always aware of the problem they're trying to solve. And that's, I think, where it becomes really like this whole discussion of painkillers versus vitamins becomes really interesting because the main problem with compliance, or at least the way it has been perceived for good reason, is that we're talking about a very risk averse audience by nature. You're talking about a target audience that doesn't necessarily respect the underdog or the disruptor or the innovator. They go with check or they used to go with check the box solutions. But I think what is really exciting about this market right now is that not just compliance, GRC as a whole, governance, risk and compliance, this market we're selling to is really having its moment today. So just same way as HR had its moment a few years ago, close to 10 years ago, with the whole employee engagement movement coming to light, really GRC are having their moment today. They are not as saturated in terms of they don't have an abundance of tech solutions and tech capabilities as their colleagues in the HR department. And they need better data. They need they need technology to really transform their business. And this is a great opportunity right now. So our customers for Vault specifically would never be check the boxers. The, the business we're growing is very much on the back of for kind of the new generation of compliance leaders, of legal leaders within organizations, check the box is no longer an option. They need to prove incredible value to their organization and truly defend it from risk. And, and therefore, they're looking into technology that takes them way beyond that check-the-box exercise. So our early adopters are eager to find new technology solutions and to adopt them quickly. And I think one of the things that I've learned and a mistake that I've done early in the days is that I didn't want to appear as being too small or too young as a company. And so I wasn't really open about the roadmap and what it brings about. I thought, let's try and find customers that want to buy into the product as it stands today. But what I found, and I found this specifically with compliance buyers, is that they truly appreciate the opportunity to have their input into the technology developments in their area. It makes them stronger leaders and shows them and opens the door to them to where technology is going and how it's going to revolutionize their own industry in a matter of months or years. So they're finding this opportunity truly valuable. And today we're very open about this is what the product does today. This is what the product is going to do. Come and help us build it. It's your moment now. It's this community's moment to shine. And we're finding it as a, as a great strategy to improve our product in a way that really serves the need. And to sell. Enterprise buyers, just generally, that's not just compliance buyers. Enterprise buyers love having their own footprint on 
the product roadmap and love being involved. And the minute they are involved, they're more keen to buy. We're finding this to be really serving us these days. Hey, Nat, I'm wondering if you could pick up on that idea. When, when you were penetrating your early customers, how did you think about not being just another tick the box? They obviously were paying their employees somehow. How did you communicate the difference of papaya and why it was better and why it was more than just a slightly better, slightly cheaper way of doing what they're already doing? How did you communicate that? It sounds like what that is describing is you have to turn it into more of an opportunity for them to excel as opposed to just an opportunity to tick some boxes. How did you communicate that message on papaya specifically? Actually, I remember those conversations quite clearly because I think that the one thing that stands out more is that they were really excited that somebody really wants to solve their pains. It, it was like, nobody ever asked me how painful it is. Nobody really cares about how painful it is. It's a recurring process months over months. So I think our first clients, just the fact that we really came with a technology angle, we did not solve them yet another solution with another name, another pricing, but we told them we are investing efforts to create real technology, to take the pains away from your table, the ones that you are constantly doing every single month, the ones that are constantly bringing stress to your table, um, let us know what they are or this is what we can currently solve. And for me, I remember because I came with some experience in this industry and we, I had this huge kind of aspiration of what we want to bring and the features that we want to build. But in reality, in the MVP part, they wanted to have very small things that really make their life easier. And for us, it was not even hard to achieve. Show me that everybody has been paid. Just assure that everybody's on the list. Just assure that the numbers make sense. Just show me the discrepancies from month to month so I can uh, do my checks, the manual checks that I'm spending uh, tons of time on much more efficiently. So we were selecting those kind of wins that eventually we did not see even as big in terms of development and so on. They were not complex. They were just a matter of bringing them to the client, creating this relationship and assuring that from this moment on, we can bring more and more features to their table without them being hesitant. Because I think that the other side of the things for us is that sometimes when we speak with people that ha have been spending 10 or 20 years in this industry, mainly on the global payroll side. They said, all payroll is impossible to reinvent. It's impossible to bring technology. It's too complex. We don't believe you. We don't trust that you can change it. And when I ask them why, we are not sending anyone to the moon. This is not rocket science. This is really pure, purely taking the best technology and transforming it into things, tools that you can use. Um, so this is where we're starting to create the trust. So from one perspective, starting with the very small things that they had on their table and transforming it and taking those very small things create, created much more trust than just coming with a very big destructive solution and telling them, okay, drop everything that you did. We can do that better, more efficient with a very strong technology. I want to ask you guys about both personas and messages. And I, I don't know where to start because those two are super related. I, I think I want to start with who the personas are. Aneta, I know from working with you on this that you guys were communicating with multiple personas. And so when for founders that are thinking about selling into these kinds of areas, right? Can you just tell us what the cast of characters are and how you move through them? Like maybe you can layer in a bit of your messaging as well, but I know you talked with the VP of HR. I know you talked with general counsels. I know you probably talked with CEOs. I think you talked with team leads. I think you talked with heads of compliance. So who are these characters and, and what did you learn about them and what messages resonate and how did you end up finding your persona? 
I wish there was like a formula that we can give and people can just apply. But the, the reality is that it's a painful journey to find your ICP, your, your ideal customer profile. It really is very different per company. And there isn't kind of a formula that one can apply. But for us, it was just a matter of, of learning by doing and understanding what works and what doesn't. So as I said, when we started, we very much thought about the cultural value add. And so our entire messaging was wrapped around that. More than that, in, the, in our earliest days, I mean, if you think about our platform, we're very much a B2B to employee platform, right? So businesses, enterprises buy us, but they enable access to an app. And just, just uh, like to be more specific, it initially was take our software and then tell your employees that they can use it to report problems report like harassment, abuse, right. Racism, right. Um, anything. We basically, we were very much um, in the eye of the storm of social activism, which infiltrated into the world of work and became kind of employee activism in a way where we saw a movement where people actually want to work in ethical, purposeful organizations. And there is a gap of trust within those organizations because people don't come forward and they don't report these violations when they happen. And then you get things like systemic racism or uh, systemic discrimination that happens across organizations. And it's too late when it becomes evident over the pages of the New York Times or in the form of a lawsuit. And that's exactly the pain we're solving today, right? We're taking away that pain from organizations, the pain of unreported misconduct. And yes, we very much started around this. And this was, and our messaging at the beginning was very much around the employee, which didn't work. We thought that the demand for this product will come completely bottom up. I pitched it to you, Gil, when I said success would look like when an MBA grad sitting down for an interview with a large services company is asking in their interview, do you have vault in place? Because that becomes a standard of employee protection that employees carry through in the organization. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. It's the, maybe. I mean, let's see. Like, let's see. But what we really found is that we are a product that proudly creates trust between company and its people and brings them closer together, which is especially important during times of COVID. But our buyer is an enterprise buyer. And so the first point of trust that we need to strike is with that buyer. And so the messaging has really shifted. So the messaging has shifted from you're in a safe place for employees, or even we make culture for good. This has shifted very much to messaging around risk, as well as a product matured to solve a lot of operational pain. Our messaging has shifted with that. And at the end of the day, it is important to find that one person you're focusing on whilst acknowledging HR is still a very important stakeholder. For you, who is that? We had to find it because the, the, the thing is that if I were to describe our one person, that would be chief or global director of ethics. And that's a growing function in organization, which today, and here it's where it becomes complicated. It can sit either under the chief compliance officer, so in the compliance department, or under the general counsel being legal. And in does, does that does that person, sorry for the like boomer <laughs> question, but does that person have budget? The that ethics person, person? That person has budget. That person definitely has budget. If you think about just the damage, think about Facebook recently, the damage that has been caused by a single person going out with a story, the budget is very much growing around that. 
And the budget is shared with a compliance or legal department. I, I think as your, your product is, I think, fascinating and, and quite complicated. It might be worth asking you to clarify, like, how much of the benefit from Vault is the immediate benefit of, look, we bought this ethical software, now we're ethical. And as soon as you buy Vault, you've already accrued most of the benefit because you can tell your employees, look how ethical we are. And how much of it is, oh my God, we avoided a multi-million dollar lawsuit because we got this thing reported and now we can fire the offender and we're not going to go to jail. I know that the second thing has happened, but you can't talk about it because it's always secret. So how do you think about the benefits in tangible versus cultural soft benefits. Our North Star metrics have always been double. So we want to see an increase in reports as opposed to the baseline of legacy or no solution, which we are seeing, by the way, today the data speaks for itself. More than 70% of our customers have seen an uptick, a significant uptick in their reporting straight after launch. So it's already happening. And then secondly, it's the decrease in investigation time. The more company spends in resolution, the more costly and risky it is for the organization. We spend a lot of time thinking about our metrics. This is completely reflective of the fact that we're serving both companies and their people. That's how we measure it. What we do in order to kind of ensure value, we understand what is the buying reason for Vault. And here I have to say, and I know like, you know, in all the textbooks about how to create your first sales playbook, they always tell you, what's the one buying reason for this product? Vault doesn't have one buying reason, unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, Uh, We don't have one buying reason. We have customers buying us either because of the cultural value add, because they truly want their employees to be heard and they want to listen for whatever reason that is altruistic or as a risk prevention strategy, whatever it is, they need to listen. We have customers buying because of operational reasons, because till date, they had terrible software to manage investigations and resolution. And for large organizations, we're talking about organizations that handle hundreds of, if not thousands of tickets a year of this. And we have buyers that are buying it for compliance reasons as well. So these are different buying reasons. We identify the buying reason and we sit down with a customer to define what success is for that customer. And you're right. A lot of it comes from the day of launch. It's a big celebration day for companies' ethics. We, We have clients making their own videos. It happened with Airbnb. It happened with Trustpilot, creating their own videos, announcing us. The general counsel would announce us to the entire company saying, this is a you know great new chapter for our company is being an ethical organization or a purposeful organization, which is a great like celebration day. And a lot of the value comes from that. And, and the value will continue to come as these cases emerge and risk is being detected and prevented further. Thank you, Neta. We'd love to hear about this from Anat. So Anat, could you tell us a little bit more about who Papaya is selling to? Who's the persona? Has that changed over time? And also, what is your messaging and how has that evolved over time as well? So uh, when we started, we thought that we have to it to the HRs. This, this was where we started. Our messaging was terrible, actually. It was things like transforming contingent workforce and quite a lot of uh, very heavy words with uh, sounds of important things, but uh, over time we understood that eventually what we are doing is reinventing global payroll and doing everything around global payroll. And it, it saves the same messaging and, and eventually much nicer. But also over time, we understood that HR are a very small part of our journey. And if we want to sell to more uh, heavy buyers and the one that is really going to be product that is going to change their day to day, those buyers are actually on the finance, on legal, and on the IT side. 
And each one of them have their own reasons because sometimes you are approaching the finance team and they want to have the control for them, having a centralized platform, having the fact that somebody can see on a real-time basis everything that happens is taking the control out of them. Not all of them uh, really like that. Um, but sometimes the pain in the organization is actually the fear of having a huge breach in the data, huge breach of security, and so on. Payroll data is the most sensitive data to the organization. If I'm hacking the payroll data, I can seriously, uh, obviously, um, affect the employees. I can affect their, their organization, both on, on the brand management reputation, uh, but also on, on the personal data leakage. So sometimes our customers are actually the ones that are not dealing with the payroll. They are coming from the IT uh, and are saying when we were doing our risk analysis, we identified the biggest risk and the biggest concerns we currently have in the organization is the way that we exchange data with our global payroll provider. This is very manual. We don't have control. We don't want to be in a place where this becoming an issue to the organization. So their actually authority to transform it is currently is, is bypassing their uh, the finance authority even to say we don't want it or we want to keep working as we are. So it really depends what where is the pain, where is it coming from. We see more and more companies, for example, that are telling us, listen, I mean it's a concern, we can definitely do it better, but it's working, so why fix it? But then they are going to IPO operation and eventually they have those auditors that are saying you have zero controls. You have zero monitors on your uh, global stand. You can't even understand what's going on in here. And you don't monitor. Obviously, it's a huge compliance risk. You don't have control about authorization. There are lots of things that as the company is growing, we never think about risk. We want to, to live the day-to-day. We, we have our own problems. We want to think about the growth. We want to think about the, the, the fun part. But this is really setting tools in place in order to eliminate the risk and maybe to align to something that Neta said that she cannot speak about things that happens in the organization. The internet knows everything. If something happens in the organization, it's going to be there. It's going maybe to get a very large voice, so maybe a low voice, and the organization can maybe reduce the voice. He can't make it disappear. It's going to be exposed. We, we all live with glass doors on everything that we are doing. I think that the responsibility that we have on managers is to create healthy organizations and very transparent organization. So I don't care if something happens. So I don't care if people know. I think it's the same. We see it with diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm not sure that everybody uh, is really eager to pay everyone equally. But if you tell someone, tomorrow you need to publish your own data, everybody will know if you're not paying them equally. This will immediately increase his motivation to pay everyone equally because they don't want to be the, the person to be presented as the non-equal payer. Okay, got it. Awesome. And now we have a question from Steen. Thank you so much for um, uh, letting me ask the questions. My name is Steen. I am a co-founder and CEO of a privacy legal tech tool. And I think my questions to you guys is around partnerships. So you just announced your partnership and big congratulations on that. My question to you has the partnership's been a good channel for you in terms of leads and growing your MRR? And if so, what type of partnerships have been beneficial? So maybe I'll take it because I think it's an interesting question. And I think that Vault and Papaya are on a bit different stage. And the, the thing about having partnerships in place, from one hand, it's a very important thing, but also I always think that it should be on the right timing for both companies. And, and I think that when we were exploring the partnership, and I know Neta for a while, 
but we wanted to assure that eventually we bring more value to our clients. So if we believe that our responsibility is to be their growth partner globally and to assure that we care about their compliance, I want to assure that I can bring the best uh, tools that can convey this message and bring them more value to the organization. Uh, and I think that you need to always look at this about from the client's need. Even the less interesting angle is here is it becoming a, a revenue, interesting revenue stream for you. This was never the partnership. It was really about what's the value proposition for the client. Can we together perform better environment for the client? Can get, they be happier with having those two tools side by side? I think I would just add to that is that my advice to you, Stina, for what it's worth is that it, it's really important to, before you embark on a partnership's journey, is you need to really get comfortable with your own direct sales machine. You need to be able to create that repeatability. You need to create that scalability in your sales. And then you turn to partnerships. Turning to partnerships too early, as Aynat said, might be more of a problem than a benefit. There are a few things that it's really important for a founder to figure out about their sales before they turn to partnerships. For us, it's really a game of data. We're the only solution in the market in our space that syncs in with uh, customers' data. So we sync in, in our case, with employee directory. So partnering jointly on product and on go-to-market with leading vendors is a no-brainer for us. That's very much part of our business growth. But it's been a bit of a waste of time for us to do that. And especially if you're looking at resellers through, say, the big four, or those major services companies, when you're doing that, in your earliest days, it's premature and it's a bit of a waste of time from my experience. Awesome. Great. I want to ask you guys a question about the trust that's required, right? That the level of trust that a customer needs to have in you guys as companies is just really high. We touched on it a little bit in terms of product readiness, but I think beyond product readiness, there's just this question of trust and credibility. I don't know if one, one or both of you want to just talk to that question of like, how do you break in when someone wants to work with you, your product is complete, it has all the necessary features, it does everything it needs to do, but there's still this, no one ever got fired from buying from IBM, why should I risk my career on you? If either of your software does anything wrong or unexpected, it causes huge issues. So how did you overcome that in the early days? And what's your advice to founders trying to deal with that? And maybe more specifically, what mistakes did you make trying to overcome that, if, if any? Because I imagine that's a place where people can waste a ton of energy doing the wrong things. Yeah. So it's a great question. I think that there is nothing that will ever replace the personal engagement of a founder when going into a client meeting and giving him his, your personal liability that you will make it happen. You will work as hard as needed in order to make it happen. And I think that every client, we have one of our biggest clients, this is a publicly traded uh, cyber company. They've been choosing us, our first global payroll client. And I remember they were handing us the security questionnaire to us when they wanted us to fill. And I saw the questionnaire, I called the contact person and I said, listen, you understand that there is nothing here that we can really fill. I can say no, but there's going to be three pages of no. And she said, yeah, we understand you're a young startup. We don't expect you to meet those criteria now. We do expect you to commit to meet them over time and that you care about them. And we also uh, expect you to be very honest with us about what you are and what you're not. And I think that finding those clients that are looking for those personal approach, because they gain a lot. They gain a company that will do the extra mile for them. They get founders that are totally committed. 
they get a product that in many cases is being designed according to their feedbacks and so on. But you need to find the clients that are ready to do so. You, you really need to aim to the right client. This is a, a lot about personal relationship. It's a lot about trust. And it's a lot about them believing in you. And believing means that it's okay also to say, we cannot do that or we are not ready to do. But being completely honest with them, I think this is what also gained the trust. If you're trying to tell them a bigger story, you know, it shows. Nobody can think that if you co-found the company a six months ago, a year ago, you are able to deliver the moon as a company that has been there 20 years. So try to bring the, the values that you can bring to the table. And there are lots of values in small operation, in innovative operations, but, but be very honest about them. I think this is eventually the biggest customer buy. And also we did mess up in some things. We took vulnerability. We went, we apologized. We cared about the mistakes. We fixed them. And I think this is eventually means a lot to the client. The one advice that I would give to any founder is you cannot hide behind the product. You need to stand. People need to see your face. The, the first clients are not choosing the product. They're choosing you. The great answer. Thank you, Inat. So up next, we're going to be joined by James Omisakin. He's the co-founder and CPO of Compare Ethics, and he's actually also based in London. So James, go ahead. The floor is yours. Hi. Um, yeah, great talk. Thanks for the feedback and those that you, you guys have talked about today. I wanted to just touch on one bit. So we're a sustainability communications platform, and there's also a kind of compliance lens around greenwashing that we're focusing on. I think we're still working on our messaging. It's evolved over time, but I wanted to get from you guys, how do you lead with your messaging? Is it the operational piece of how you make people's lives easier, faster, quicker, saving time, etc. Or do you lead with the risk side of things? I, I think it's a great question. I think that eventually there is no right answer, but think about yourself as a human being. I can sell you something by telling you this is going to be very helpful for you. You're going to be happier and so on. I can tell you something by telling you if you're not going to use it, terrible things going to happen to you. We all want to be kind of to take it to the optimistic side, but we do want to assure that people understand what is uh, the dark side of things. But I don't think that this should be the messaging. I don't think that any cyber company is really selling you and telling you, use that, otherwise you'll get uh, hackers knocking on your doors and so on, or it will be a disaster for your company. Um, you need to assure that people are positive messaging probably works better. But you do need to understand and eventually assure that people understand what they are protecting from. I just wanted to say that it's, it's okay to have a set of messages. It's okay to have a set of messaging. We definitely have the, the risk messaging as well as the operational one, as, as well as the positive cultural messages. But having a good sales team, this is something you can start. I don't know how like early you are in your journey, James, but as part of your sales motion, you should have a good discovery call with your customer and really pick on that reason why they filled out that book a demo form with you and understand where are they coming from and fit that message to your customer. It's okay to have several, test them, experiment with them. I think it's all part of this great journey. Thank you. With the last five minutes, uh, we'd like to pivot a little bit and talk about running a high-growth startup as a woman. For Angular, 
we love investing in female founders. We've invested in several already. We have five portfolio companies which have a female founder for them, female CEOs. That's about 16% of our portfolio. So we'd love to learn just a little bit more for, from you two. If you could just tell us a little bit about your experience fundraising and maybe how that changed between the different rounds. And if you ever experienced any negative biases or not. My favorite topic. So I always, always say that COVID is probably the best thing that happened to female founders, meaning while they're pregnant, because you don't see anything on Zoom that can reflect pregnancy. It keeps the dialogue very clean. Um, I think that being a female founder have obviously have challenges if you're trying to raise funds uh, during pregnancy. I think that the world is changing, but there are still a lot of people that won't invest or they will come with those kind of opinion on you and how you should behave as a mother, how you should behave as a founder and so on. Eventually, it will be harder for them to accept the concept that you are the one that's deciding on your own choices, but also the one that knows that how to manage a company that you decided to fund outside with having kids and raising them. I, I spoke a lot about that. I have a few uh, blog posts uh, that I speak very openly about the challenges because I do think that having kids, being pregnant, uh, giving birth, going through the first few months uh, after labor with a baby, with a company that you need to run and so on. But I do think that eventually this is probably some of the things that make a company more solid, more sustainable. Uh, and uh, ready to face with everything. I have three kids. All of them were born during uh, the time that I co-founded Papaya. Six years old. My eldest kid is almost five years old. Um, and every time when I was kind of getting ready to give birth, I did this plan. It was obviously on different stages of the company. How the company uh, will be managing without me being present. So if a uh, disaster recovery plan for the company. Uh, Issey Nat is gone. We are, she's not picking the phone. Nobody knows where she is. She went really silent after giving birth. In reality, I'm happy to say that uh, it never happened, but it really uh, made me and forced me to get the company ready for anything and assure that uh, eventually I hand over better liability and responsibility and I build better the organization, which I think this is one of the biggest challenges to any founder on, on a growing stage of a company. Thanks, Anat. Great response. Uh, Neta, did you have anything to add? We'd love to hear more about your experience here. I didn't have the same pleasure as Anat did of actually fundraising while I was pregnant. I started the company when my two daughters were toddlers. And I guess it, it poses the same challenges for men and women of you know starting a company when you have small children. From my experience, I, I don't know if that's just my kind of faith in human nature. I never felt like I'm sitting, I'm pitching to an investor, mostly mostly men, but today the landscape is certainly changing. We're seeing more female partners sitting in VCs. I don't think it was ever the case of me pitching, feeling like the investor probably thinks, oh, I, I wish I had that in a man. I don't think that was ever it. Where the problem really reflects itself is in their Monday partners meeting, going through the deal flow where the founder simply doesn't look like the typecast and there is a typecast. And mostly that typecast doesn't apply to women because of just the likelihood of a woman having an entrepreneurial past or being the first employee in a unicorn in the past. It's just less likely. 
So I think there is a problem with typecasting. Gil has asked me several times, you know, what are the warning signs for VCs and what can VCs do better? And it kind of made me think of car insurance as a bit of an analogy for this. So in Israel, there is a hugely discriminatory practice that, by the way, is illegal in Europe, but here in Israel, it's actually very legal, which is women pay less for their car insurance premium than men. Now, the reason that they pay less is that statistically, it's less likely for a woman to be involved in a serious accident than men. And that's not because men are worse drivers, but that's because generalizing, but these things have been actually proven statistically, women are more cautious, while men are more confident on the road, but at the same time, they overestimate their ability to avoid risk and they will take risk more than women will. I remember that there's been like this experiment that has been really cool with road simulation where both women and men had to simulate bypassing a car on the highway, projecting 20 seconds into the future of whether there will be a collision. And women gave it, you know, a, a much higher probability that there will be a collision while men thought was there in the driving seat, they will overcome it. The reason I think it's really, really interesting for the whole fundraising experience is that our job when we raise capital, specifically in the early days, our job as founders is to confidently project into the future, draw a picture of that future. Now, neither us as founders nor you as VCs have a crystal ball, but we all pretend that we do, right? And we need to project into the future and say what that future is and how the world is going to change, and how this market is absolutely huge, and how our product, you know, draw a direct line between our product and our personal capabilities to inflict that change and to bring to that change. And talking from my personal experience, but of our ability to do that confidently as women in the earliest stages when we're in our first or second round is, is just not as great as men's ability to do that. And so it's the VC's job in my view, if you want to correct what's happening today, is to give women a break in that a little bit, understand where they're coming from, understand that they are seeing that collision with far more clarity and they are more hesitant to paint that picture and that it's something, it's a skill that they can acquire with the right mentorship over time as they do this for the second and third and fifth time. But it's perhaps not as, as evident in the first rounds. It's certainly it's been my my problem personally that I've been working through. And I have two great mentors here, which are Inath and Gil, that really helped me to overcome it. But that would be probably kind of my pitch to VCs. <laughs> Let me use that to segue into my my question, which it, it admittedly may be a very selfish kind of question, but I I want to ask from the perspective of a white male VC, which I, I can't change that about myself. We hear a lot about how difficult it is to raise money and run a startup as a female. I think motherhood and parenthood is like a separate set of challenges that a lot of men are parents. This morning, I was doing a conference call while I was making breakfast for my daughter. I think that is something I think we can understand better. I think my question is, assuming a well-intentioned male, male VC who wants to be an ally and wants to be gender blind and tries to be gender blind. What do you think are the blind spots that, that those people have, specifically as it relates to gender, putting parenthood to one side, like specifically as it relates to gender, what, what do you, in your opinion, male 
male VCs or even male tech executives just need to be more aware of when dealing with female colleagues, whether it's in fundraising or as a portfolio CEO or as a board member or as even an executive team? What's your advice in terms of finding those blind spots? Yeah, so it's a hard one, uh, you know, because I've never been in your shoes. But but I just think uh, maybe I'll uh, address the pregnancy specifically. I think that one crucial lesson that I've learned while trying to raise funds uh, while being pregnant and showing uh, to meetings with a five-month belly. And I never raise the topic. You see someone, you understand that everyone that sees me obviously can, could see that I'm pregnant. I'm not thinking about that. They're not thinking about that. Everybody is doing their own assumptions. And eventually this is the worst situation that can happen. I mean, you have something, an issue. Let even uh, call it disability for a period of time. If you need to address it, you need to say loud and clear, I know that I'm pregnant, everything is under control, this is okay, I can handle this. But from the other hand, what I would expect to hear is not, yeah, sure, doesn't mean nothing to me, but more kind of assurance that, yeah, okay, how can we make it better? Or uh, how can we make this period easier for you? I mean, what do you need in order to succeed and so on? Because I think that eventually it's not about can you make it, okay? If a female founder stepped into the room, it means that she thinks that she can make it. You don't need to ask her if she can make it. You can just need to ask her how can you help her and facilitate things and make things easier maybe in this interim period. Because this can be a critical period. Missing a quarter, for example, uh, in forecasting while raising funds can be very critical to the company. Obviously, if you have personal things that are attached to it, maybe everything you need is just grace. Maybe everything that you need to hear is just, okay, I understand that the next quarter is probably going not, not going to be a, a quarter that I'm considered as a normal quarter for the company. Let's ignore it. Let's focus on to what you are going to achieve there. Those are the things that I think make the dialogue much better than just ignoring it and trying to make everything perfect. And eventually, this is where things are going sour from both sides. I just think just to top that and with no relation again to pregnancy, I think the white male VC should ask themselves whether are they assessing an opportunity or are they assessing the risk? Because I feel that perhaps is a difference between a pitch coming from a female CEO and a pitch coming from a male CEO. The questions tend to be or can be sometimes a bit different. Plus a male CEO, especially if he comes across as very experienced, a second timer, et cetera, the, the, the VC will almost, almost ask him, you know, to take him on a journey and help him assess the opportunity while a female CEO needs to justify herself and almost hedge the risk for, for the investor. So I think it's just asking yourself, is this what I'm just doing? Am I assessing the risk as opposed to assessing an opportunity? Is this a very similar conversation to the one I just had with, with a male founder, male CEO? I think that can really help as well. Thank you so much. That was in, in, incredibly helpful and, and interesting, both personally and also on this sort of glimpse into compliance tech and what all that means. And do you want to give a highlight of our next? Yeah, first question? of all, thank you so much, uh, Nada and Ainat, for, for joining us. This is amazing. Thank you, audience, as well. Join us next month. We're going to have Oren Canel. He's the co-founder and CEO of AppsFlyer. He's going to be talking about the importance of culture and values as you scale a business. Thank you all so much and have a wonderful day. Mm-hmm.